0: Uh, Open up to Acts uh, chapter 21 uh, this morning, Acts chapter 21. We'll be uh, reading verses uh, 17 uh, through 26 uh, this morning. Listen, then, uh, as we, we read the word of God. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly on the following day Uh, On the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God and they said to him, you see, brothers, how many thousands there are among the Jews. Those who have believed they are all zealous for the law and they have been told about you. That you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, uh, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourselves among them and pray uh pay, excuse me, pay their expenses, so that they may shave their heads. Uh, Thus, all will know uh, that there is nothing in what uh, they have been told about you, but you yourself live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, uh, we have sent uh, a letter of our judgment that they should abstain. uh, They should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from that that from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. And when Paul took the men the next day, he purified himself among them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification uh, would be fulfilled and offering uh, and the offering presented for each one of them. Uh, Let's pray this morning. Our great God and Heavenly Father, we just come into your presence and ask that you would bless your word. We ask that you would give me the words to say we ask that you would uh, send your Holy Spirit into into our midst. We ask, Lord, that the word of God, the living and inerrant word would be profitable for teaching, for correction, for rebuke and for training in righteousness. You have something for each one of us to hear and learn today. And so we entrust this ministry of the word to you. And we ask these things, even as your word says now to to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. According to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever. Amen. As we go into this passage this morning, I want you to think for yourself. Uh, have you ever come up to a a four way stop? And, and you notice how what, sometimes when you come to a four way stop, everybody not only stops. But everybody kind of just pauses with that awkward, well, who should go first? Well, who should yield? Sometimes that happens when it's even just two of you, especially when there's a car directly across from you and you both get to the stop sign at the same time because you're going, well, well, neither one of us got here first. Who's, who's going to go first? And so sometimes then what happens too, and I've been in these situations where, where you wave for someone to go at the same time they wave for you to go and then you're like, well, well, what do we do now? We both waved each other to go. And then sometimes it even goes a step further, like you both start to go at the same time and then you stop and then you're then you're like waving each other. And, and sometimes it happens even more than once until finally somebody just stays on the brakes and somebody finally just says, all right, if you don't go, I'm going to go. But there's that that awkward position of of. I don't have to maybe yield in this circumstance. I'm not necessarily obligated to be the one that yields. We both got there at the same time. Uh, and yet we do yield. We say, OK, go ahead. And and when the, it's even funny when the other person is at the same time is thinking the same thing. We both got here at the same time. I'll be the nice driver and, and yield to you. Paul's in a situation here. Where he could have defended his ministry. He could have have really through the power of God even just laid into them and said, you don't understand what I've been preaching and teaching. But instead of doing that, he yields to the fellow believers. He decides to show them through his love rather than speak down to them through some kind of teaching that's our main point this morning is simply uh, yield to brothers in Christ, even where it's not required. What do I mean by yield? I mean, respond graciously, respond kindly. Sometimes you, you do something that you don't necessarily have to do, but you do it out of kindness. You do it out of out of brotherly love. It's like when you both get to the stop sign at the same time, you're not wrong if you say, well, I'm just going to go first here. But you yield, you, you signal to the other person, why don't you why don't you just go? Sometimes that's exactly how we need to be. And sometimes it's in circumstances when we've been misunderstood, maybe even treated a little bit unfairly by a brother in Christ. And yet the right thing to do. Even though we're not obligated to do it, the, the good and and gracious thing to do is is yield to them to, to go that extra mile to respond in such a way rather than just saying, no, you're wrong to say, you know, I'm just going to love you and let my actions speak for my for themselves that you, that you did maybe misunderstand, but I'm not going to rub it in your face. I'm just going to turn and love you. I think that's what's going on in this passage. And that's how how Paul is responding at the local Jerusalem church. The first thing I want us to see this morning and and you may encounter this, but you may have a Christian brother or sister who accuses you without understanding. I'm sure you can think of a time in your life. We have all been there to, to one degree or another where somebody just completely took something you said out of context completely used it the wrong way. Maybe they even got angry with you. Maybe they even rebuked you a little bit. Maybe maybe it wasn't something you said. Maybe it was something you did. And, and they misunderstood why you did that. And so here's a brother in Christ, and they're maybe even saying something wrong or false about you, saying, like, you don't really care about other people. How do we respond in situations like that? There are times where we need to speak the truth and we need to speak the truth in love. There are other times where as a believer responding to a fellow believer, the best thing you can do is have a soft answer that turns away wrath. A kind, gentle heart that just goes out of your way to to show them some love, even when you don't have to. Let's look at what's going on here in our passage. First, Paul goes down to Jerusalem. So look at 17, 18 and 19. When he had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. This is the elders of the Jerusalem church. And this is James, the the brother of Jesus. James, the brother of John, has already uh, died at this point in Acts. But James is a leader in the church. One of the the head elders in the church, verse 19, after greeting them, he this is Paul related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So Paul begins to tell them and, and we went down to Ephesus and we this is what happened in Ephesus and they had a fight over us. But but look at the people that are getting saved. And we also went to Thessalonica and we went to Philippi and we were thrown in jail there. But this is how the jailer got saved. What, whatever it was, Paul was telling one by one, all of these stories, all of the events, and I am sure there are things that Paul recounted that aren't even recorded for us in Acts. It was a, a missions report. I don't know if you've ever seen this, but we'll probably do one of these, one or two of these in the coming years. But, but sometimes you'll invite a missionary uh, to church, not one or two in the coming years, but one or two probably next year. Uh, you invite a missionary to church. And you get them to share what's been going on in the mission field and, and how it's been going for them. And sometimes they share great stories. You know, so-and-so got saved. This is what happened here. Other times they share times of hardship as well. And I'm sure uh, Paul shared those as well. But then you as a church, you just rejoice with that person. The, the gospel is being spread. Amen. And that's exactly what happens here. Look at verse 20. The church actually rejoices over the salvation And when they heard it, they glorified God. They turned to God for what God has been doing to save Gentiles. And they said, Amen. Hallelujah. Praise God. This is a church that passionately believed that God was saving the lost. And not just that God was saving the lost, but that God was saving lost Gentiles. We sometimes forget that, but that this would have been very hard for a Jewish person to get their minds around. They were so used to we have the Old Testament, we have the things of God, we are God's people. And rightly so, Paul tells us in Romans chapter nine, the beginning, that there are many blessings in being the physical seed of Israel. You have the covenants, you have the promises, you have the Ark of the Covenant, you have the temple. And now Gentiles were getting saved. And they weren't becoming Jewish after they got saved. They were believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this created tension in the early church. But now the church is at a point where they understand salvation and they understand the working of God. And they just give all the credit to God and say, amen, we lift up your name. Oh, God, you are you are spreading your word. The nations are coming in. That's the kind of attitude we need to have when lost people get saved. Scripture tells us that the angels in heaven rejoice When one sinner turns to God, oh, that our hearts would would be like that when someone comes to salvation, that we would open our hearts and say, praise the living God who has saved these folks. Some of the brothers, though, in this church, while they were happy, it seems that that God was saving Gentiles, some of them misunderstood Paul's message, some of the brothers in the church wrongly thought or were wrongly thinking that Paul is teaching them to abandon their Jewish heritage. So look at verse 20 and 21. When they had heard it, they glorified God and they said to him, you see, brothers, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed they are zealous. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. Keeping the law to a Jewish person is extremely important, especially the the matter of circumcision was such a a deeply personal matter. Now, earlier in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 15, some believed that if you weren't circumcised, you couldn't be saved. It was a sign in the Old Testament of belonging to the people of God. It was what all the children of Moses were, excuse me, all the children of Abraham were supposed to do. It was in the law of Moses. And so you can imagine early on some of the misunderstandings that arose The Jewish Christians here by now had rejected that they'd fought this debate in Acts chapter 15 and it was over and done. But they were still passionate about this for their own cultural heritage. In other words, they didn't think it had anything to do with salvation anymore, but they did think that it was in part a way of honoring God and remembering their heritage. During. The time between when the book of Malachi was written and the time Jesus comes at 400 years. We often think of it. We call it, you know, the 400 years of silence because no scripture is being written during this time. But we forget that that there was still history going on uh, during this time. Things were still happening. And one thing that happened during this time is is a Gentile king came in and defiled the temple and they They persecuted the Jewish people so much so that they forced upon them eating food sacrificed to idols. They forced them to worship idols. They forced them to remove the marks of circumcision. They forced them to turn their back on God. We call it the Maccabean period. And out of this, there was the Maccabean revolt Let me just read for you. There's there's a book that was written called First Maccabees. And let me be clear. It's not scripture. It's not God's word. But it has some good historical things that we we should know went on. So the book of First Maccabees, again, not God's word, but an account historically says that they removed. These are Jewish people. They removed the marks of circumcision and abandoned the holy covenant. They joined with Gentiles and sold themselves to do evil. Later on in, in chapter one, verse forty eight, it says they they leave. Not only did they build altars and sacrifice food to the, the false gods, they they left their sons uncircumcised. They were they were to make themselves an abomination by everything unclean and profane. According to the degree of the false king, they put to death women and uh, and their ch- who had their children circumcised and their families uh, Those who were circumcised, who circumcised them and they hung infants from their mother's necks and many in Israel stood firm and were resolved in their hearts not to eat unclean food. And they chose to die rather than to be defiled by food or to profane the holy covenant of God. And they did die, it says. What does this have to do with the book of Acts? Think about what is going through the minds of that Jewish believer. I believe God. I followed God. My grandparents, my great grandparents have followed God. They could probably recount for you family members going back to great, great grandfathers and great, great grandmothers who lived during this Maccabean period and did not yield. And it would have. Worried them, how can Paul just come along and say, we need to forget our heritage, forget who we are. It, it almost would be like saying, forget that God brought Israel out of Egypt. Now, Paul wasn't saying that. But that's what they had been told. That's what they had been heard. And it, you can imagine just in your own mind how it weighs on you emotionally. And this would have been what a Jewish believer at this time would have felt. They misunderstood the words of Paul. What does Paul say about the law? He clearly says throughout Scripture, all of Scripture testifies that we are not saved by our obedience to God. We are not saved by how well we obey God. We are not justified, Scripture says, by works of the law. By doing all the commandments in the Old Testament. You don't get saved by being circumcised. You don't get saved by going, uh, into the temple and, and purifying yourself. You don't get saved by trying to keep all the Ten Commandments. Because none of us do these things. Paul says that. Romans 3.20. For by works of the law, in other words, things that you do in keeping the commands of God, the law, the Old Testament, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Galatians 310, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, meaning if anybody relies on this for their salvation, you're under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book and do them. None of us keep God's law perfectly. And so the law of God exposes our sin. Paul had never said you're saved by how well you obey. And if you're here today and you think the the Christian life is is a matter of keeping score and making sure that your your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, and and if you just do enough good before God, God will let you into heaven and you can go into the presence of God through how much good you goodness you have in your life. That is not. The gospel, the gospel says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the only way to be saved is believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. That's salvation. Paul says in Romans ten four that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And an end there may even have the idea of being that Christ is the goal of the law. We know in Matthew that Christ comes not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He keeps it perfectly for us. Why is it that you and I, particularly as Gentiles that that don't have a Jewish heritage, why is it that we can go home today and eat ham? How many have a ham in the oven? Why, Why do we not keep some of those ceremonial laws? Because God has fulfilled them in Christ. And Paul would have laid this out. Paul talks about the law serving Christ. Galatians 3. Is the law contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, meaning eternal life or salvation, then righteousness would have indeed been by the law. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Galatia, Romans chapter six, for we, sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Galatians, Paul certainly said that circumcision has no saving value. Paul says, look, I say to you, and he's speaking to Gentiles, that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. He says this, Galatians 6, 15, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation for Jesus, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Galatians 6, 5 or 5, 6, but only faith working through love. 1 Corinthians 7, 19, for neither circumcision or uh, counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commands of God. Paul says we should keep the commands of God. In 1 Corinthians 9, he said we're outside of the law, not the law of God, but we are under a law of Christ, meaning we don't have to do all of these ceremonies. But can you imagine the Jewish person getting a copy of Galatians? Well, Paul says right here, neither circumcision or uncircumcision matters. He's telling me as a Jewish person, I should honor my heritage before God. And it created trouble. It created trouble. Paul was misunderstood. Paul was misunderstood. And yet, on one occasion, after Acts chapter 15, after that council where they determined and settled for certain that Gentiles don't have to be circumcised, Paul had Timothy, who was half Gentile, circumcised so that Timothy could go and evangelize Jewish people. Paul himself in Acts chapter 18 took a vow where he didn't shave his head for a period of time. Following probably what was a Nazarite vow. Following one of the ceremonies in the Old Testament. Paul wasn't saying that that particularly these Jewish believers shouldn't honor their heritage. And remember the things that God had done through the Old Covenant and in the Old Testament. But Paul was also saying It doesn't matter for your salvation. But he was being misunderstood. The accusations against Paul were false with regard to Jews keeping the ceremonial law. This happens in our life. Maybe not exactly like Paul. But you say something. You teach something. You express yourself in some way. People will misunderstand you. I'm sure it has happened in your life. You can you can write it all out, be precise with every word, every every comma, just like uh, Helen as a lawyer might look over a contract and get it down to the the narrowest of words. So it can't be misunderstood and people will still come along and misunderstand it or misunderstand you. And this is a question in the sermon. How do I respond? How Do I respond? Let me just give you two quick principles before we go to the second point. When the gospel is at stake, defend the gospel vigorously. Okay? If the issue is over the gospel, if someone's coming along to you like they did to Paul and saying, you need to earn your salvation to be saved, defend the gospel vigorously. Paul even says that if you if you get another message, even from an angel, let the person that brings that message be condemned. He defends the gospel vigorously that, you know, there are times where you do have to draw a line in the sand. And you say this far, no further, I cannot compromise. Do that with the gospel. But the second principle is when it's a personal preference at stake. When it's just something someone has against you and they've they've misunderstood and the gospel isn't at stake. I would say this, and I think this is what scripture is teaching. Compromise vigorously. When you can give ground without compromising the gospel, without compromising the word of God, compromise vigorously. Show yourself to be loving. Show yourself to be kind Paul, I think, really could have been a lawyer here and mounted a case and used examples to say, I'm not teaching this. Maybe he could have even pulled out his his scrolls of that he sent to the Galatians or first Corinthians and said, look at what I've said. Did I did I ever say this to the Jewish church? But instead, he shows them his love. And that's our our second point. Look at verse twenty two. What then is to be done? they will certainly hear that you have come. That's the question. What do we do in our lives when people misunderstand us and it's not about the gospel? So second, this morning, when a Christian brother misunderstands you, you may need to go the extra mile for them. You may need to do something that you're not necessarily required to do. You go the extra mile. You show them that you're loving, even though, you know, it might be kind of silly. I wonder if Paul thought, you know, it's kind of silly that I all all the teaching that I've had. It's it's kind of silly that I have to do this vow for them. And yet he does it and you don't get any hint of him him bristling at it. So when we are misunderstood, we are often tempted to fight back and vindicate ourselves. Paul doesn't do this. Paul says, in, a, in effect, with the council of the Jerusalem church, you know, we're just going to be loving and show them that it's not true of Paul. So Paul quietly and patiently submits and bears witness with his actions. Look at verse 23 and 24. This is the solution the, the elders at Jerusalem recommend and what Paul does. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them. And pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads so that they all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, that you yourself also live in observance with the law. Can you imagine how most of us, myself included, would have responded? I'm free. I don't have to do these things. Just because you have a weak conscience, we might say. Don't. I don't see. And yeah, just because you have a weak conscience and don't see how Christ fulfills the law perfectly doesn't mean I have to keep these ceremonies, we might say. Paul doesn't do that. What these believers have done here is probably most likely is taken a Nazarite vow. Uh, and when you take a Nazarite vow, typically they last for 30 days. But Samson's was a, a Nazarite vow that lasted his whole life. You, you don't drink wine. You don't touch things that are unclean. You don't touch dead bodies. Uh, you also don't cut your hair. Um, I haven't taken a Nazarite vow recently. Uh, I have never taken one. But, but, but you can imagine then at the end of this vow, not only do you cut your hair, but, but it, from the book of Numbers, you offer one male lamb. One, you lamb and one ram as a peace offering. I think at one point I read through this probably when I was much younger and thought, man, Paul paying their expenses. That must be a really expensive haircut uh, that they can't that they need somebody to pay for it. But but really, he's not paying to have their haircut, although that's part of it. He's paying that they would take these sacrifices into the temple. And can you imagine? Paul could have said, why are we doing this? Christ is in heaven, our perfect mediator, our perfect sacrifice. We don't need to do these things. But he shows love to them. They're still honoring God. They're not sinning in doing these things. Paul has a habit of being willing to submit to all of the ceremonial law in the presence of Jewish believers. So he says this in 1 Corinthians 9. For though I am free from all, I made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. He says in verse 22 of chapter 9, 1 Corinthians 9, to the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. And I have become all things to all people that uh, that by all means, I might save some. That's how he does it with unbelievers. He says, look, there are going to be Jewish people. And if I'm not keeping the law, when I go to witness to them, that's going to be a stumbling block. And they're never going to want to hear the gospel. He says, in effect, Jesus should be the stumbling block, not this issue of whether I keep the ceremonies or not. So I'm going to do this. He does something similar here to the believers. I don't want to be a stumbling block. I want to love them. I want to show them that I'm not teaching against God's word. And so I'm going to do this. I'm going to pay for their Nazarite vow. He takes his own uh, vow of purity here. When I was a camp counselor uh, at a Christian camp, we met some people. They came and stayed at the camp for a week. Uh, they, They were with an organization called Jews for Jesus. They were Jewish people. Uh, by ethnicity, but they believed that Jesus was Lord and God. They believed that he was the Savior, that he was the Messiah. And we got to talking one day around uh, the kitchen table and, and they didn't eat, obviously, ham. And I was a little surprised by that. And I was kind of like, well, well, what am I supposed to do? Um, they had no problem with me eating and, and enjoying my freedom in Christ. But they also had family members who were still Jewish they also had a cultural background of of heritage as, as Jewish people that they were trying to honor. Uh, and so they didn't eat ham. They didn't um, they, they didn't eat shellfish. Uh, I assume keeping the Old Testament, they circumcised their, their boys on the eighth day. But they did all of these things out of a love for Jesus Christ, but also to reach friends, family members, people in their community who were Jewish. And that's not wrong. That, in fact, that's a good example to us. Remember, in Acts, the gospel is not at stake here in this passage because the Jerusalem church upholds the Acts 15 council. Look at verse 25. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter uh, with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. What are they saying? They're they're affirming to Paul, we believe the gospel. We're standing by that decision in Acts 15 that you don't have to be circumcised to be saved. Most especially if you're a Gentile. I said you don't have to be circumcised to be saved. Circumcision doesn't save you is what they're affirming. And they're sticking to that. The issue isn't over the gospel. Most scholars think here that Paul's ritual purification. He probably didn't have enough time to take the whole Nazarite vow because I said they those typically lasted for 30 days. And that's not the time frame uh, we have here. But there was a a Jewish tradition, a a rabbinical tradition, that if you traveled in foreign lands, particularly lands that were owned and, and maintained that were Gentile, when you would come back to the land, you would you would purify yourself. I, I couldn't find it as a command in Scripture, but it was a, a tradition in the time of Paul. And so many think that Paul, not only it's an issue of keeping the word of God, he's just keeping a, a custom of that time. That he had been traveling through the Roman world and in the eyes of many would have been unclean. And so, in order not to hinder the cause of the gospel, in order not to cause these believers to stumble, he just went and purified himself and then offered the sacrifices in the temple. Paul is willing to uphold the ceremonial law and even go into the temple to worship, even though the earthly temple has been replaced and sacrifices are replaced by Christ's work. He wasn't compromising the gospel. But he was going that extra mile to show love. And he wasn't just showing it to people who had been kind to him. He was showing it to people that that were going to have a grave misunderstanding, already had a grave misunderstanding about Paul and what he was teaching. It's very possible that some of the Jewish believers were not only worried about what Paul was saying, but maybe said some things that were kind of insulting. Maybe misaligned Paul. How could Paul teach those things? Maybe even in their hearts got angry with them, although they were the ones that were misunderstanding. You will have in your life times where people will grossly misunderstand you. You will have times in, in your life where you will be falsely accused, you will be maligned. Maybe you'll have a coworker at work that doesn't get along with you. You have done nothing wrong to them, and all they do is malign you. Maybe speak behind your back, talk about you when you're not there. Maybe you have family members that will say things that are borderline or they are gossip. How do you respond? There are times and places where we need to defend ourselves. There are times and places where we certainly must never compromise the gospel. But there's also this category of times and places where the circumstances are unique and you can win people over by loving them, not debating them. That's what we need to do. There's something maybe in your life right now where you're being maligned. Let me ask you this. What can you do to love them? Maybe you just buy a cup of coffee for that coworker at work who you know just for whatever reason doesn't kind of like you. Maybe next time you see them, you just kind of say hi and you, you smile at them just to show them you have nothing against them. You may find yourself in a situation inside the church where a fellow Christian has a a weaker conscience than you. What what do I mean by that? We have some of these Jewish believers and Paul talks about weaker brothers, stronger brothers. And you have some of these Jewish believers in the early church, particularly in Corinth and some of the other places, that because they grew up keeping the Mosaic law, even when they became believers, they had trouble Understanding that the law was fulfilled in Christ, they were very passionate about worshiping still on the Sabbath, it seems in the book of Romans, or at least they were very passionate about celebrating all of the Jewish holidays, which you don't necessarily need to do as a believer. Some of them were were very passionate about not only watching what they were eating But making sure they only ate vegetables. They only, they didn't eat meat lest they accidentally eat meat that's sacrificed to an idol. They had weak consciences in that sense. They maybe even were saying, well, well, Christians can't, can't do that. But there's nothing in scripture that says that a Christian can't eat meat. It's what we call a weak conscience. You may encounter somebody like that. We, we've made the joke here from various times that years ago in the history of the church, uh, back in the day, that, that you couldn't roller skate because roller skating was seen as, as worldly. Uh, careful how I say this, but two weeks ago I was rollerblading out on the parking lot. So if you're offended by that, I, I apologize. But, but just to show you that that's not a hang-up that we have today. Nevertheless, when you encounter people like that, sometimes you just graciously respond and say, "Okay, if that bothers you, I'm not going to go out of my way to offend you. You maybe misunderstand something. Maybe you even misapplied the verse. It's not a not wasn't a sin issue, but you're just being overly strict where you don't have to be. But sometimes as the believer, as the stronger brother, as the brother who knows the word of God, you just say, you know what? I'm going to go the extra mile for this person. I'm going to do that thing that I'm not necessarily required to do, but I can show them that I love. Who do you have that like that in your life? Is there something maybe in your life, the life of the church or just friends and family that, you know, maybe around them you do honor and respect some extra rule that they have, even though it has nothing to do with anything that's in Scripture. But you do it because you love them. 1 Corinthians 8, verses uh, 11 through 13, Paul says this, And so by your knowledge this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if... Food makes my brother stumble. I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. That is how far Paul is willing to go the extra mile with these believers. Romans chapter 14 verses 1 and 2 says this. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him and do not quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Uh, Chapter 14, verse six, the one who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord, the one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains abstains in honor to the Lord and gives thanks to him. D.A. Carson, and we'll end with this quote he wrote uh, in the book, The Supremacy of Christ in the Postmodern World. He has an essay in there and he says this, he says, if I am called. To preach the gospel among a group of people who are cultural teetotalers, meaning they, they don't touch alcohol at all. He says, I'll give up alcohol for the state sake of the gospel. But if they start saying you cannot be a Christian and drink alcohol, he says, I'll reply pass the port or I think I'll have a glass of wine with my meal. What's the point where the gospel is at stake. Don't compromise. If someone is saying, you have to do these things to be saved, you say, no. Salvation comes in Jesus Christ alone. But if someone has a personal conviction, a hang-up, maybe maybe even culturally, that's the way they were raised, and and you say, look, I, I just can't bring my conscience to to do something, you say, you know what, brother? I'm going to honor that. And I'm not going to do anything that might cause you to stumble because I love you in Christ. There may be something that I have some freedom in Christ to do. And because I know it's going to make a fellow Christian stumble, I say, you know what? I don't need to do that. I don't need to prove to you how free I am in Christ because that might make you stumble in your relationship with Christ. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that we would have the the attitude and mindset here of Scripture, that we would... Be like the Apostle Paul in this sense that we show love towards others, that we are willing to to go the extra mile, even do things that aren't necessarily uh, mandated in Scripture that we do. But by doing them, we can show love to to brothers and sisters in Christ that we might yield to them, that we might go above and beyond in showing our love and kindness and and graciousness. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would speak to us from your word and that the Lord Jesus Christ would be glorified. In his name we pray, amen.